In our present series, we've titled Understanding Current Events in Light of Bible Prophecy. We have looked at a general overview of Bible prophecy and we've outlined the prophetic calendar as it's revealed in the Bible. And in doing so, we've concluded that the next great prophetic event to occur will be the rapture of the church. We've also seen that the following, that following the rapture of the church, there are two stages on which the prophetic events that we find in the Word of God are going to occur. One stage on heaven and one stage on earth. Heaven will be the stage for church age believers as Christ brings the spirits of those church age believers who have died physically since the day of Pentecost in 30 AD. He's going to bring them back with Him in order for them to get their resurrection bodies. And those of us that may be alive at that time will be changed in a moment in the twinkling of an eye to be like Him and will be caught up together with them into heaven. There are two key scenes that take place on the stage there in heaven. The first is the judgment seat of Christ, where we will receive our commendations for stewardship and our commissions for both the millennial and the eternal kingdom. The second is the marriage of the Lamb, where the church becomes the bride of Christ. These events will play out in the seven years that we are there with Christ, awaiting His return to the earth to establish his millennial kingdom. The stage on the earth is for unbelievers. And the events identified in the book of Revelation chapter 6 through chapter 19 will play out here on the earth in what is identified as the tribulation. The seven-year period of time will be marked by chaos resulting from natural and supernatural disasters the likes of which the world has never seen before. As a result of these events, fear will come upon the whole world and the people will quickly surrender their freedoms in pursuit of safety and perfection. We had a little taste of that due to the COVID scare and we saw how quickly people surrendered to the politicians in seeking protection and safety. We'll just wait until then and you would be advised to be in that crowd that watches it from heaven. As church-age believers, our focus following the rapture of the church has been upon the stage in heaven with the judgment seat and the marriage of the Lamb. Although there are no specific prophetic events revealed to indicate the time or the date of the rapture, in Revelations chapters 2 and 3, we've been given a description of the characteristics of seven distinct periods of the church age. They indicate to us in our study that we are in the Laodicean period and the rapture of the church is imminent. We can clearly see that the stage has been prepared and as we await the Father sending His Son to get His bride. Remember, the Timing for the rapture will be when the Father says to the Son, Go get your bride. 
But before we shift our years and our focus in our prophetic study from the stage in heaven to the stage here on earth, we need to spend a little time determining our course of action while we are waiting for the coming of the bridegroom. Now, if there's a purpose of studying Bible prophecy beyond curiosity, it should be motivation and instruction. So before shifting our view to the events that are going to be staged here on earth during that seven-year period, let's look at the motivation and the instruction given to us in Bible prophecy as we await the rapture of the church. The Christian life is not just a safety net. We're not just to be in a holding pattern, simply attempting to survive as we await the return of Christ. We're instructed, let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your Father which is in heaven. Matthew chapter 5 verse 16. For most professing Christians, their faith and practice in the Christian life is often viewed as a safety net to enable them to deal with the trials and the afflictions of life while we live out our life here upon planet earth. Christianity is too often viewed as an addendum to life rather than the whole purpose of life. Now, while many Christians view biblical teaching as important in developing an ability to cope with society, too few grasp the reality that we become new creatures in Christ Jesus. Second Corinthians chapter 5, verse 17 says, Therefore, if any man be in Christ, he is a new creature. Old things are passed away. Behold, all things are become new. Too few Christians grasp the reality that we change citizenship at salvation. Philippians chapter 3, verses 20 and 21 says, For our citizenship is in heaven. From whence also we look for the Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who shall change our vile body, that it may be fashioned like unto his glorious body, according to the working whereby he is able even to subdue all things unto himself. It should not be our objective just to learn and apply principles and teachings of Jesus in order to develop an ability to cope with life. But our objective now is to live our lives out as a sojourner. That is, a person not living in his own country, but living alongside the locals to do business for our king. Although our citizenship changes at salvation, we're generally left here upon the earth instead of being immediately taken home to be with God. The single result we are left here to fulfill the design that God has for each of our lives. That's the reason we're here. There are only two reasons why a believer dies. Number one, he has fulfilled his design ministry. Or number two, he refuses to live out that designed ministry and so is taken home prematurely. Belief and faith in God are not designed just to enable us to get from the crib to the grave with the least amount of pain and suffering. Belief and faith in God enables us to do the work 
we've been commissioned to do. We have a future in heaven, but we're told in John chapter 9, verse 4, we must work the works of Him that sent me while it is day, the night cometh, when no man can work. In the King James translation, it says, I must work. Jesus is speaking. says, I must work the works. But in the original language, the word is plural. We must work the works. We have a work to be done. And while we are waiting for the coming of the Lord, we need to be doing that work. In order to understand that, we need to understand God's plan for men. The angelic conflict is the reason that man was created. Understanding the doctrine of the angelic conflict is essential if we're going to understand why man was created and why this earth is temporary and will eventually be replaced with a new earth that will be much different than the present one. In the beginning of this series, we did a quick review of the angelic conflict. So I'll simply refer you to that study for the details, but allow me to briefly define it here because of its importance to why we're here and what we're supposed to be doing. You can't understand the end times unless you know the beginning of times. In eternity past, an archangel by the name of Lucifer attempted to overthrow God and he took a third of the angels with him in his rebellion. He was defeated and the angels that aligned with him were sentenced to the lake of fire and brimstone. Lucifer appealed his case. He declared that God was unjust. So God created man to settle the issue. The scripture location for that is Genesis 1-1 through Revelation 22. It's scattered throughout the entire word of God. For every angel that chose against God, there will be a church age believer that will choose for God. This is based upon what we refer to as Operation Footstool in the book of Hebrews and the references to the Roman triumvirate in Paul's writings in the New Testament. God created man with free will. And before he ever formed Adam out of the dust of the ground, knowing that man would use his free will negatively and sin, God provided a plan of grace for redemption in the same manner as he had for the fallen angels. The Bible tells us Christ was slain before the foundation of the earth. Revelation chapter 13 verse 8. The angelic conflict will be settled when the number of church age believers equals the number of fallen angels. Now that statement is based on the references that we have in the Bible to the Roman triumvirate. That is, taking a literal approach to Scripture, one must conclude that that's part of the plan. God's plan was revealed through the law and the prophets throughout the Old Testament. Understanding why we are here, that is to settle the conflict by validating the character of God, enables us to understand God's redemptive plan of grace in sending His only begotten Son. 
God's plan was revealed in the law and in the prophets. The law was never a means of our salvation, but taught through illustration the amazing grace of God. The sacrifices, the offerings, the purifications, the seven annual feasts, the holy days, all pointed to the coming Messiah and taught the concept of grace which would be implemented through the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. So God's plan, as it was revealed in the Old Testament, becomes fulfilled in the New Testament in the life of Christ and in the work of the church. The virgin birth, the sinless life, the sacrificial death, the victorious resurrection, the glorious ascension, the present intercession, and the soon coming of our Lord Jesus Christ provided the fulfillment of the requirements for the redemption of mankind. And now the church serves as the body of Christ and members in particular. Jesus said, I am the light of the world. And then a little further in John's Gospel, he said, Ye are the light of the world. And then for clarity, a little further along, he said, As long as I am in the world, I am the light of the world. He places us here to bring the revelation of God to a world that is steeped in sin. We should not be simply trying to get through life. We are left here to do the work of the One who has sent us. In our earlier study, we looked at the ancient Jewish marriage tradition. Remember in the tradition of the Jewish marriage, following the betrothal, the groom would return to his father's house to prepare a place for he and his bride. This usually required the building on of a room to the father's house where he and his bride should live. In John chapter 14, Jesus said, In my father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you. I go to prepare a place for you, and if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you unto myself, that where I am, there ye may be also. Under that tradition, while the bride waited for her groom, she prepared her wedding garments. The bride's wedding garments is described in Scripture in Revelation 19.8 as her righteousness. And to her was granted that she should be arrayed in fine linen, clean and white, for the fine linen is the righteousness of saints. The word righteousness is translated from the Greek word diakaiomata. Now, this word is not to be confused with the Greek word diakaiosune which is used in reference to God's righteousness being attributed to us through personal faith in Jesus Christ, which speaks of the character or the quality of righteousness and makes us acceptable to God. In salvation, we are given God's grace, and literally, using the letters G-R-A-C-E, we can define that in that we have God's righteousness at Christ's expense. We fail to keep that standard, and so 
God became flesh and lived among us, keeping the standard, conforming to the plan. Dikonosune means that which conforms to the blueprint. Jesus did that for each one of us. And as a result of that, when we call upon His name for salvation, we are given God's righteousness at Christ's expense. But the word here, speaking of the righteousness of the saints, is a different word. In my earlier ministry, and some of you may find on this particular website an in-studies time that uh, dates back to 1991, and uh, at that time I had not worked this thing through. And so I'm going to contradict a little bit of what was said there as I speak of God's righteousness, because this word does not refer to our character, but it refers to the right acts. And in the grammatical structure in Revelation 19.8, it indicates that this clothing, this fine linen, is the acts of the saints that are in conformity with God's plan. Excuse me. God has a design for each one of us. That is, He has a plan for our lives. At the judgment seat, we're going to be given the fruit of our labors based on how well we have conformed to His design for us. We're going to be arrayed in our own righteous acts as it relates to our reward and living out our life our conformity to God's plan, and His design for us. Now that concept, arrayed in white linen, being our own personal actions, as believers seems to be in conflict with Isaiah chapter 64, verse 6, which tells us that our righteousnesses is as filthy rags. And in some of our earlier study with you folks, you have uh, been there when we've talked about this verse because the word filthy rags is actually used menstrual rags. That our righteousness before God is compared to you is to used menstrual rags. Now, why would God use such a term through the prophet Isaiah to describe what our righteousnesses are? Well, we understand as we look at the Levitical law that every time a woman was in her monthly menstrual period, she was declared ceremonially unclean. had nothing to do with her lifestyle or her personal actions, but it had to do rather with her standing. Ceremonially, she was declared unclean. Now, why would that be? Well, the Scripture helps us as we understand the Mosaic Law and we harmonize Scripture that the Lord had told Satan, the seed of the woman will triumph over you. And so Satan placed his attack upon the seed of the woman. But the promise of God was that there would come a time when the seed of the woman would produce the Messiah and the Messiah would triumph over Satan. And so every time a woman 
went through that monthly period, she was declared ceremonially unclean as a reminder that the seed was passing from the body, but there was coming a day, there would come a time when the seed would not pass from the body of the virgin, and that which would be conceived would be conceived of God, and uh, he would be Emmanuel, God with us. He would be the Messiah. He would pay our debt and uh, bear our shame in our place. So when Isaiah says that our attempts at righteousness is like unto used menstrual rags, when the woman was declared ceremonially unclean, she could not go to the temple. She could not make offer prayers. She could not make sacrifice. She was unclean for seven days. Our attempts to meet the righteous standard of God for salvation is of such a nature that as long as we attempt to do that ourselves, we cannot communicate with God. We have no relationship with God. It's only when we throw ourselves upon His mercy, we appropriate His grace, that we are made acceptable. However, here as it refers to our righteous acts, it refers to our living out the design of God's plan for us. And we have the indwelling of the Holy Spirit in order to do that. So we are not disqualifying ourselves. We are putting on, making our wedding garments. The wedding garments were the righteous acts of the saints. And at the judgment seat of Christ, we've studied that already, and we saw that we're going to receive four different crowns that are based upon the techniques of living the Christian life, and that those crowns are not diadem, but they're stephanos, they're awards and recognition of achievement in that same manner the white linen is representative of our conformity to God's plan. We're going to cast those crowns at the feet of Jesus in a tribute to God's grace and His provision. And the wedding garment is only worn one time. It's strange that women would spend so much money, usually fathers would spend so much money on a wedding gown, and it's only going to be worn once. Our righteousness, our conforming to God's plan as born-again children of God, enabled by the Holy Spirit, living according to the dunamis power that He provides us day by day, is the basis for our being able to make that wedding garment for our wedding dress. So the concept of being arrayed in white linen refers to our conformity to God's plan for our individual lives, and it is a tribute to the bridegroom. Now there are a number of distinctive titles that are used in the Bible to describe the work we as church-age believers have been commissioned to perform between our salvation and our departure. Now, if we are to understand what we are to be doing with regard to what's going on in our world today, 
we must understand these distinctive roles such as husbandmen, laborers, servant, slaves, sojourners, pilgrims, ambassadors, and stewards. We are described in the Word of God as husbandmen or laborers. The Greek word identifies a sharecropper or a tenant farmer. A husbandman is one who farms the crop for the owner. God has removed Israel as his husbandman and given the church that role in this age. That's borne out for us in Matthew 21, Mark 12, and Luke 20. This term is used in parables as it relates to those that God has appointed as tenant farmers. Jesus used this analogy to describe Israel as the tenant farmers who rejected God's Son and were replaced by the church. Jesus said, hear another parable. There was a certain householder which planted a vineyard and hedged it round about and digged a wine press in it and built a tower and let it out to husbandmen. And he went into a far country. And when the time of the fruit drew near, he sent his servants to the husbandmen that they might receive the fruits of it. And the husbandmen took his servants and beat one and killed another and stoned another. Again, he sent other servants more than the first, and they did unto them likewise. But last of all, he sent unto them his son, saying, They will reverence my son. But when the husbandmen saw the son, they said among themselves, This is the heir. Come, let us kill him, and let us seize on his inheritance. And so they caught him and cast him out of the vineyard and slew him. When the Lord, therefore, of the vineyard cometh, what will he do unto those husbandmen? They say unto him, He'll miserably destroy those wicked men, and will let out his vineyard unto other husbandmen, which shall render unto him the fruits in their seasons. Jesus saith unto them, Did you never read in the Scripture, the stones which the builders rejected, the same has become head of the corner. This is the Lord's doing, and it is marvelous in our eyes. Therefore say I unto you, the kingdom of heaven, a kingdom of God shall be taken from you and given to a nation, bringing forth the fruits thereof. As a result of Israel's unfaithfulness, they have been set aside and the church has been grafted in. The church has now become the husbandman. Paul makes this identification in Second Timothy chapter 2, verse 6. The husbandman that laboreth must be first partaker of the fruits. However, it's interesting to note that Paul also refers to the church as the husbandry, a cultivated field or a vineyard. In First Corinthians chapter 3, verse 9, he said, For we are laborers together with God, ye are God's husbandry, ye are God's building. The word laborers is from the Greek word sunergoi, and it means a field or a co a field worker or a co-worker in the field. And it's together with God. So we are tenant farmers. 
working together in the field with God. Our role as husbandmen helps us to understand that today. The church has been entrusted with the things of God and He has revealed to us that He will send His Son to hold us to account for what we have done and that which has been entrusted to us. The role of husbandman dictates the overall scope of the work we have been called to perform and the prophecies have been given that provide us with a calendar of activities upon which we are to be focused. We are husbandmen. But we are also described as servants and slaves. One of the most frequent words Paul used to describe his role of service to God is the Greek word doulos. The word doulos means slave. As believers, our sin debt has been paid and we have been set free so that we can never again be enslaved apart from our own free will. But we choose as believers to identify ourselves as slaves of Christ, as did the Apostle Paul. The Scripture says, For he that is called in the Lord, being a servant, and that's where doulos, a slave, is the Lord's free man. Likewise also, he that is called being free is Christ's slave. You're bought with a price. Be not ye servants. No, that's the word slaves of men. So in 1 Corinthians seven twenty-two through 23 he says, For he that is called in the Lord being a slave is the Lord's free man. Likewise also he that is called being free is Christ's slave. You're bought with a price. Be not the slaves of men. In this passage, then, this word slave is usually translated in the King James by the word servant, but it is the word for slaves. Now, to understand this reference to slavery, we must understand our redemption from the slave market of sin. There are four words that we need to know in order to understand our role as redeemed slaves. And so a brief review of the doctrine of redemption is required for us to stay focused on the commitment with which we are to serve our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Let's look at the doctrine of redemption. As a result of Adam's sin, man is dominated and controlled by his sin nature. He is enslaved to sin. In John chapter 8, verse 34, Jesus said, Whosoever committeth sin is the slave of sin. Servant is how it reads in the King James, and that word is translated from doulos and should be slave. We have been enslaved to sin, but Jesus came to set us free. The Bible teaches that man is born in the slave market of sin. All men are born in sin and are slaves to sin. But Jesus came to redeem us. So he told the Jews, If the Son, therefore, shall make you free, you shall be free indeed. The New Testament identifies Jesus Christ as the Redeemer. 
And as I mentioned, there are four Greek words which are used in the Greek New Testament to help us understand better the doctrine of redemption. The first word is agorosthete. This word is used in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 19 and 20, where it's been translated into the English bought. Agorosthete means to make a purchase in the slave market. It's used here in 1 Corinthians to identify the fact that Jesus Christ has purchased us from the slave market of sin. We need to note that only a free man could purchase a slave from the slave market. A slave could not own property. He was owned property of someone else. So he could not purchase his own freedom. Therefore, Jesus Christ was the only one qualified to redeem us. We have been born in sin, but he was born without the old sin nature. The old sin nature is passed down through the male, according to Psalm chapter 51, verse 5, coupled with 1 Timothy 2, 14 and 15. When we harmonize those two passages, we see that the Adamic nature is passed on in the human race by the seed of the man. That's the reason Jesus had to be born of a virgin, to bypass the imputed sin of Adam. The immaculate conception was required in order to bypass the imputed sin nature being passed on to the Christ child. This word, agorosthete, translated bought in 1 Corinthians six nineteen and 20, simply tells us that we were purchased from the slave market. The second word we need to understand concerning redemption is the Greek word lutrosetai. It's translated redeemed in Titus 2.14. We're speaking of Christ, it says, who gave himself for us that he might redeem us from all iniquity. Lutrosetai means to set free by paying a ransom. With his death on the Roman cross, Jesus went into the slave market of sin and paid our ransom in order that we might go free. With the purchase price of his own blood, he provided for our freedom, freedom from the authority and the penalty of sin. Prior to that payment being paid in full on the cross, we were in bondage to our own nature. We were enslaved to sin, but Jesus paid our debt in full. Prior to that payment, we were in bondage. Now we have been set free. Our sins have been paid in full. And man is reconciled to God through faith in Jesus Christ. Sin is not the issue today. Christ is the issue. Through Christ, the authority and penalty of sin were broken. The authority and penalty of sin were broken at Calvary. But Christ has also freed us from the power of sin. Yes, now we can have power over sin by accepting Christ as our Redeemer, getting out of the slave market of sin, and allowing the Holy Spirit the control of our lives. Because of Calvary, the believer 
has been set free from the authority, penalty, and power of sin. And praise God, one day we'll be set free from the presence of sin. Lutro Satai identifies we have been set free by the paying of a ransom. The third Greek word that we need to examine is apolytrosis. Apolytrosis is a strengthened form of the word lutrosetai. It has the prefix apo, which means from, and speaks of a releasing from bondage upon the payment of a ransom. The distinction between lutrosetai and apolytrosis is an important distinction. Lutrosetai emphasizes the payment of debt or the purchase price, which was the blood of Christ. But apolytrosis emphasizes the deliverance that is ours as a result of the payment. Apolytrosis is used in Hebrews chapter 11 verse 35 in reference to deliverance from affliction. It's used in Luke 21, 28 concerning the deliverance of the saints at the second advent of Christ. It's used in Romans 3.24 and Ephesians 1.7, Colossians 1.14, with reference to liberation from the guilt and the doom of sin and freedom into a life of liberty. It's used in Romans 8.23 and 1 Corinthians 1.30, Ephesians 1.14, and Ephesians 4.30 of deliverance from the bondage of our physical, mortal, and corruptible bodies. So apolytrosis helps us understand the benefits that are ours as a result of the price Christ paid as a ransom for us in the slave market of sin. Deliverance from the authority, penalty, and power of sin. Deliverance from temptation. Deliverance out of affliction. Deliverance from tribulation at the rapture. Deliverance from guilt. And deliverance from our mortality and our corruption. The fourth Greek word that we need to understand is ex agorosin. It's used in Galatians 3.13 where it is translated redeemed. Christ has redeemed us from the curse of the law being made a curse for us for it is written, Cursed is everyone that hangeth on a tree. Exagorosin means to purchase a slave, and get this, and give him his freedom in such a way that he will never be enslaved again. You remember the parable of the Good Samaritan and how the Good Samaritan took the man to an inn and took care of him. And the next morning, as he left, he left money to take care of any further needs of that individual, promising that when he came back, he would pay that to the innkeeper. Christ paid our debt, and he continues to pay our debt. He has redeemed us from the curse of the law, and we can never be put under that curse again. Exagorosin is the great word, and it affirms the doctrine of our security in Jesus Christ. As a matter of fact, in John, uh, 1 John chapter 1, verse 
uh, chapter 3, excuse me, verse 9 says, Whosoever is born of God does not commit sin, for God's seed remaineth in him, and he cannot sin because he's born of God. We have been redeemed in such a way we have eternal security in Christ. Our salvation was based on what He did, not what we do. And our debt was paid by His sinless life to cover our sins, past, present, and future. Let me quickly summarize these four words. Agorestate means to purchase in the slave market. Lutrosetai means to pay the ransom needed to set us free. Apolitrosis emphasizes the deliverance that is a result of payment, and ex agorosin means to purchase a slave and set him free in such a way that he will never be put in the slave market again. He can never be enslaved apart from his free will. So we are free men, never to be enslaved again, apart from our free will. But we may choose to identify ourselves as slaves in our commitment and service to Christ. We'll not be forced. We have been redeemed as free men. But of course, the only reason we are left on the earth after salvation is in order to be husbandmen, laborers, to be servant slaves. Other passages identify that we are to be sojourners and pilgrims. We studied that a few weeks back. And we see that another role is that of an ambassador or steward. So if we decline to live out God's design as ambassadors, we might be recalled. The only reason we're left here is to live out that design And should we not live it out, then unless God's got some other reason for leaving us here for another work that He's going to do, we are subject to recall. We'll be looking at that ambassador role later. We're described as sojourners and pilgrims. We studied in that, that the sojourner and pilgrim was foreigners, not living in their own country, but living alongside the local citizens to do the king's business. First Peter chapter 2, verse 11 identifies that role. And we are born again. Now our citizenship has been changed. We're citizens of the kingdom of heaven, but we're living alongside the locals here to do our king of kings and lord of lords business. And we see that we are ambassadors for Christ. An ambassador is one who is appointed by their king to represent that king in the court of another. Second Corinthians 5.20 documents that for us. And throughout the New Testament epistles, we see the encouragement and the design of God in our role as ambassadors for Christ. And we are described as stewards. A steward is the person that serves to manage the affairs of another. It's referred to in Luke chapter 16 through 18 in 1 Corinthians 4 verses 2 and 10 in 1 Peter 4 verse 10. 
In this series, we've examined the role of church-age believers as sojourners and pilgrims. So next time, we'll briefly review our role as sojourners and pilgrims and explore as well our role as ambassadors and stewards. Then, we'll investigate our being the body of Christ and identify specific actions that are required to conform to God's design in order that our wedding garment might be pure. God has the design for us, and it's only as we know His personal design for each one of us individually that we're going to be able to properly respond to what's going on in this world relative to the circumstances in politics, in the church, in society today. We are God's husbandmen, laborers. We are appointed to manage His estate. As such, we are to be alert to what's going on and how that might impact God's estate in order to understand what our response ought to be. We've been redeemed from the slave market of sin. We've been given our freedom and given life in such a way that we can never be enslaved again apart from our choice. But we have the opportunity to become a volunteer slave for Jesus. However, we'll not be forced, but we'll be offered the opportunity to serve Him. He's designed a specific plan for each one of us in service. But the choice to live that out is ours. We can accept His redemption and say thank you and go do our own thing. A lot of the redeemed have done just that. Or we can become doers of the Word, accept the role of tenant farmer, live out our lives in fulfillment of laboring in His field and laboring in His vineyard as He has given direction. We can embrace our freedom as a result of redemption, commit our day to Him, and live out the plan that He has for our lives. In the studies ahead, we're going to attempt to better understand what that design is and what your specific task is as we look at the concept of being his ambassador stewards and as being part of the body of Christ. It's as we study the body of Christ role that we are able to identify the specific job that God has designed us to fulfill through the giving of spiritual gifts and the establishment of the church to equip the saints so the saints can do the work of ministry. But it all begins at salvation. The Bible says, For all have sinned and come short of the glory of God, and the wages of sin is death. But the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. The Bible says, With the heart man believes unto righteousness, but with the mouth, Confession is made unto salvation, for whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. When we have responded to that call and accepted that salvation, 
It is irrevocable. We are committed throughout eternity. But living the life that he's designed us to live and filling the role that he has molded us for will be a matter of choice on our part, our volunteer service to him. Let us pray. Our Father, we give you thanks for grace that is sufficient for every need that we encounter, for your provision for us in salvation, for redeeming us in such a way that we can never become enslaved again apart from our own choice. We May we choose to serve our risen Savior. Minister to each one as we go throughout this week and help us to have open eyes for opportunities of service and sensitivity to the direction of your Holy Spirit in guiding us to our task. As we give you thanks in Jesus' name, amen.